I always say that valuation is more of an art than it is a science because it's not something like where it's even accounting, right? When you say, oh, accounting is so black and white, but even then there are nuances that you can do to accounting, but valuation is even more so. There's a lot of gray areas. And, and the reason why I like it is because it's similar to the law where you can basically argue your case, right? And it's all about creating a story. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon, good evening, good night, good morning, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to a brand new edition of Social Confos. I'm your host, Shanluk, together with my host, Diego. How are you doing today, Diego? I am doing great. And speaking of a great new week, it's almost the end of the first quarter of 2023. That went by in a blink of an eye. Yeah, thanks Mark. for confronting me with that. <laughs> but yeah, I'm doing great. Excited to have a fun conversation again today on business, but before we go get into that, I saw you share an article today of Mark Schaefer. He came here at a conference last year during social media conference, and he shared his experience in Suriname. And I read it thoroughly today and quite an interesting take, quite some humor in it too, confusing an alligator with a caiman. So <laughs> there was some fun, some fun tidbits. So that I do recommend it. like an alligator. I can't understand why he thought it was an alligator. Uh, it was big. Definitely an interesting take on Suriname. If you haven't read the article yet, we'll share it later on. But yeah, so coming back to today, today we're going to talk a bit more about a little fun topic. We love to talk about entrepreneurship, business, and we're going to take it a step further today with our guest for today. And she is actually also from YLI, but not a fellow, but she was a host. So we got someone from the other end of the spectrum. And she's also part of the YLI Alumni Advisory Board. And that's from the YLI side. But our guest for today is a true expert in the world of business valuation and strategy. With over 20 years of experience in different companies and at different stages and industries. And she has helped countless business proposals propel themselves to new heights. Uh, she's the founder of Spark Patient Consulting, My Jeepney Stop, and Emporium. And she's also shipped many different leadership positions in nonprofit organizations. So please help me welcome up to the stage, Christina Esperutu. Christina, hi. Hi, hi guys. How are you doing? Hi, you look, I am good. I'm good. Thank you. You look so glad to have a cozy setting there. And to, <laughs> to, to kick us off, actually, so I was doing some research on, you know, where you're from. You, you already mentioned you're from the Philippines originally, but there's another fact that I saw in your bio. You have quite an interest in the number 420. I'm curious to the relationship of the number 420 and cannabis. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Well, you, you know, well, I guess my first question is, is, does it have the same relationship in Suriname versus Oh, yes, yeah, totally. It's the same thing. It yeah, does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so apparently it was, it became a holiday based on like, I think they said that there was a, a group of friends who basically decided to make 420 a holiday, like April 20th. Right. So now every time, every, every time there's April 20th here, they actually do have a lot of celebration. And I don't know if it's the same thing in Suriname, but you can find 
so many different celebrations, like in different, even, even when, even in states where cannabis is not legal, they still find a way to celebrate it. So, but yeah, so I've been involved in, I was involved in cannabis for, for quite a bit before, before the pandemic. But my biggest involvement was that I, I actually worked in the edibles industry. And so what I did was I connected chefs, cannabis chefs to people who wanted to do dinners that have cannabis infused food in them. So what I did was that I had a website called 420 Foodie Club, and then we just did a lot of dinners, a lot of dinners and a lot of events, just connecting chefs and edible makers to people who want to consume them, consume them safely. Um, wow. So that's oh, one thing that people don't know about me. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so, but just like with, 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 with cannabis and like the health functions of it, was there a connection there well that it was also focusing on healthier food or is it more? Problem, a relaxation perspective that people would like kind of combine the two? You know what? It really depends. So be, be, before in the beginning, so basically, you know, you, you, as you said, you can either do it for pleasure, right? More recreational or you do it for medicinal purposes. So we've actually worked with both. So on the recreational side, obviously we have the dinners where if people wanted to enjoy, it's kind of the same thing as having a glass of wine or having a cocktail, except it doesn't give you a hangover after. That's what I always say. <laughs> Maybe a different kind of hangover, but I think it's a much more pleasant hangover, right? So we have that on the recreational side. And then on the medicinal side, we actually work with a lot of seniors and a lot of people who have like chronic illnesses. And then we help them through educational seminars. And for some of them, we had gone to the dispensaries with them as well. So we had people who had gone to the dispensaries with elderly folks and trying to find the best one for them. So the most interesting Fun fact was that the oldest one that I had accompanied to a dispensary was a 95-year-old woman. So who wanted to pick some edibles for her. And I go, you know what? You got the right person. I will help you. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that was, that was the oldest woman they have, that, that, that I've helped got to a dispensary. So <laughs> oh, that's a really interesting fact. I, I wasn't expecting <laughs> yes. that at all. But yeah, thanks for sharing that. So I always wondered where the 420 came from. And now I know it's actually a date. <laughs> It's a date, yeah. yes, April 20th, awesome. yeah, at 4.20 p.m., by the oh. way. So that's the official time, too. <laughs> interesting, interesting. No, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So, Diego, yeah, there's that... another thing that I want to jump into before we kind of start off, because, like, it's a really small world, world and, and there's always been this theory mm -hmm. on six degrees of separation. But this, the interesting part of how small this world is, last week we had a, a guest that, no, we are, I actually met through a group of writers that is writing books. And this time Diego has met you through Wiley or to the Wiley program. And our guest from last week was also based out of California. And you are also based out of mm. California, which is like showing how small the world is. But then again, yeah. you used to live on the other side of the world as well in the Philippines. So what right. I really yeah. wanted to know is like, being, having seen like both sides of the world, kind of like, how was the experience for you? Because you were a teenager when you moved to the U.S. So what are things that stayed with you culturally, that you took with you from the Philippines or your family talk, took with them, that you've completely mm -hmm. integrated in your life and still is part of your life? And what is something that is totally American that you never knew about before you moved there that's also become a part of who you are? 
Oh, okay. So I moved to the U.S. when I was 15. So at 15, I was, I think I was just barely starting high school when I moved. So I think that I honestly, I think the biggest thing that I guess I can think about it in terms of culture shock was that A, the way that people dressed. (laughs) You know, when I I had this misconception of, yeah, like when I was watching in the Philippines, I was watching all these different shows. And then I thought that everyone dressed like that or that everyone in California surfed. Or everyone in California were all blonde. No, it was right? basically the media. And, <laughs> the, the media yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then I go here and I go, wow, there's so many. There, there The California, since I live in Southern California, it's so di- culturally diverse that there are groups here that are, there's Chinatown, there's Filipino town, there's different towns in California. And it's just so, just so diverse, right? So that's something that was unexpected to me. But yeah, so I think for that one, and then I, I think you had mentioned about like one thing that I had brought with me is that when people find out that I'm Filipino, they always say, oh my gosh, I love their food. Mm. Like, can you cook anything? <laughs> so it's always food related, right? So, which is, which is funny because culture is always, it, a lot of it revolves around Yeah, food, food uh, so. brings a lot of people together. And I think some. If I'm not mistaken, Filipinos love sweets, right? Because uh, when I was studying abroad, I had some Filipino friends and they were always stuffing us with sweets and stuff. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. We, we, we love to feed people. So that's that's our love language. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> yeah. No, we, we have a diverse set of food here as well. But on the, on the flip mm. side from Chandu's question, is there anything American that you've kind of, kind of adopted for yourself as well? Oh, yeah. So I guess just a quick story. So when I first came here, I mean, I knew English, but not as not as well. Right. So one the the way that I learned English was watching TV shows. So a lot of stuff, for example, Saved by the Bell. I don't know if that's something that, you know, so Saved by the Bell was a thing I watched. Yes. And so so I remembered adopting a lot of the, you know, a lot of the lingo. Right. Because I go, oh, no, this is probably how. How, you know, how, how kids here in America talk, right? And so, of course, I kind of missed on some of them. I'm like, oh, I guess they don't use that lingo anymore because I was watching Saved by the Wells was, you know, probably like five or ten years older <laughs> than, yeah. Yeah, the older so, episodes yeah. with the older slang, yes. Yes, exactly, exactly. But yeah, I think it's, you know, and aside from California, you know, California is very multicultural, but I also lived in Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania was where I went to law school and business school. And so even Pennsylvania and California are two different, just two very different cultures. So even that was an adjustment. So I think because the U.S. is so big that there are just so many different cultures in between the East Coast and the West Coast. So. Oh, that's cool. So you did your high school, started there, then you your university in Pennsylvania and was it always uh, did business and law like the business world always interest you from a young age or is that something you kind of grew into oh yeah it's something I grew into I I didn't expect to go to law school I knew I wanted to be in business somehow but I wasn't really sure but I know I wanted to be in a business where it's multicultural a and then I get to meet different kinds of people so after I went to in between Living in California and then also living in Pennsylvania, I I lived in D.C. as well. And then I lived in France for a little bit. So that really, and I love to travel. So for me, that's just a natural extension of, of what I do personally, but also in my business. So I just really love communicating and really dealing with an international community. 
Okay, one travel question before we go into the business side. Is there a dream destination that you have not been go- have not gone to yet and that's still on your list? And why? Oh, I'm going to have to say Suriname because, because of you guys. You talked about the forest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you talked about how it's the most forested area in the world, right? Yeah. yeah. More than 90%. Yeah, I, uh, awesome. We'd be happy to welcome you and yeah. show you around definitely when you get here. Right, that, that's uh, that's a plug. <laughs> that's a plug for people. Makes it. <laughs> also, I, I do want to ask the question because I met, I noticed that within your business, the multiculturality is multiculturality is, is very important. You even say like, why did we stop? That's a multicultural marketing agency. That's also one of your businesses, yeah. and it clearly you focus on on the multicultural aspect as well. How where did where where did that passion come from to say like, hey, I think that's a very underrated part and underrated aspect when you talk about about business to understand the different cultures so how did that become a big part of of your your focus for 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 business oh yeah that's a good question because one thing people don't realize is that you know when you're dealing mainstream right you have a lot of the nuances that are you know that are not necessarily there as when you're dealing with something that's multicultural I mean, for example, even a simple, like I, when I did valuations for a firm that I used to work for, we did a lot of work with Asia. And so even as simple as when you're handing out a business card or when you're saying yes versus no, you know, a lot of Asian cultures are very polite. And so when they nod their head, that doesn't mean that they're saying yes to you. That just means that they're understanding what you're saying. And so I think one thing that really captured me is that there's just this little nuances that can either make or break your business if you don't know or if you do or do not know how to interpret it, right? So I think it's just very important to have that that dimension. Yeah, it's an extra layer of communication, right? And depending on the, the counterparty, as you said, a yes can mean a no in, in a different culture. Oh, so. yes. <laughs> Oh the, yes, uh, yeah. I've I've gotten trouble and I've gotten trouble before because I said, "Oh, the deal is done, right?" Because you're nodding your head, yeah. and then they said, "No." <laughs> you just open negotiations, but before going into negotiations, yeah. so business is very broad, right? And when people go into business at the university, it's usually you know management, marketing, operations, logistics, but valuation is something you don't see much. So could you break down what business valuation means and how, how businesses should think about valuation? Sure. So basically, I always say that valuation is more of an art than it is a science because it's not something like where it's even accounting, right? When you say, oh, accounting is so black and white, but even then there are nuances that you can do to accounting, but valuation is even more so. There's a lot of gray areas. And, and the reason why I like it is because it's similar to the law where you can basically argue your case, right? And it's all about creating a story. So for example, if you're like, I deal a lot with companies that are trying to buy or sell, a, you know, something, right? A company, an entity, a subsidiary. And so if they're trying to sell themselves with valuation, it's not like you have the numbers, but then you have to have a story to back it up. Why, why did the revenues increase? Oh, it's because in the future, they're going to they're gonna have all these new customers. Why are they going to have these new customers? Oh, it's because of this. So it's a lot of times you have to be a bit of a storyteller, but you have to do it in numbers. And so and with the numbers, you have to do the application. You have to apply them, right? And then you have to describe them. So I think that for me, that was the biggest draw. We're doing valuations. It's because I can literally argue my point 
right? So there's usually a range of numbers, but I can say, okay, I think this is going to be worth X amount versus this amount based on the story, a reasonable story I tell them. So I think it's very fascinating. Have you ever gotten into a situation where you're telling this story and kind of a few years go by and then the story doesn't line up and it it, it, oh, it, it it doesn't meet, I'd say, the buyer's or the investor's expectation. How do you deal with that in, in, in the negotiation process and also the, the after aftercare process, I'd say? Sure. So, so basically, when you do a valuation, it's at a point in time, right? So let's say I'm doing a valuation as of, let's say, as of December of last year, right? So then basically all the assumptions and all these factors that you're looking at would be as of that point in time. How was the market at that time? How was the industry? How was the economy? And so you can say that, hey, you know what? At that point, my maybe my 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 historicals indicate that I'm going to go X amount or I'm going to go this amount or this trajectory, but no one knows the future, right? So then you can just basically put numbers down as reasonable as you can, and then you put a little bit of indication or factor to calculate the risk. But other than that, you have to calculate it at a point in time. But to answer your question, I've had valuations where, because I've done valuations that are after the fact. So for, for, for SEC, with Securities and Exchange Commission, they have to file something once they've acquired a company. So I, let's say they acquired a company for a million, but then acquired it two years ago. So now I'm doing the valuation and trying to see if they've actually acquired it for the right amount. And I would say about maybe 60% of the time they've overpaid, <laughs> right? So they've overpaid and, and now I have to justify perhaps or not justify like why they've, you know, how they arrived at that value. And if they don't, then they have to explain why. Yeah, because then this, the story was different at that time based on the, the valuation. So with a fresh pair of glasses or having more context, the whole valuation changes. So, yes, so how exactly. much is the valuation? When you, when you do a valuation for us to have a better understanding, how, big of, how much of it is the financial statements and the year reports and how much is, are other factors involved that influence kind of valuation as well? Oh, yeah. So basically, when you do a valuation, there are three basic methods, but one of them is called the income approach, where you essentially look at the historicals and then you look at the projection. So I do a lot. I did a lot of valuations of biotech companies and tech companies, right? So where they, they let's say they have a drug and they haven't released this drug, but then they said, oh, but this type of drug will be will be whatever, we'll give you, tw you know, it'll be 20 million next year because let's say it's for cancer because the number of people who have this cancer in this type of environment, you know, so they calculate a lot of the statistics, right? So th that one requires a lot of, as you said, factors beyond the financials. But then in a normal valuation, we do look at what the historicals are and then what they project in the future. So it really depends on the type of company because even the same thing with cannabis, like I valued a lot of cannabis companies where, you know, cannabis was, he is still right now such a, a pretty risky and then very, very, like it's still a slightly new industry. But when I was valuing it five or seven years ago, it's, it was even more so. So you can't look at financials, right? So a lot of times that we looked at, we looked at, we looked at the regulations per state because that what, that's what really dictates what they're going to make in the future, even if they get a license. 
So it really depends on the industry to, to answer your question. Yeah, industry and state can have a big impact on the, the, the way things go. And navigating back to, let's say, three years ago during the, the pandemic when COVID started, like mm -hmm. this shifted a lot of things for businesses. Like a, a lot yes. of tech companies, a significant rise in their valuations as uh, companies like Zoom because, you know, uh, people started to flood to remote work yeah. and uh, the remote sessions, etc. Other companies in the tourism and more the logistics sites kind of dropped down considerably. How did you get through that, that time in that crisis so with valuing businesses and how did you, yeah, help them stay, stay afloat? They think afloat. Yeah. So, so actually, so first to answer your question, I, I want to give you a bigger context is that valuation, basically valuation stayed the same, except the purpose of the valuation is now different. So before that, I was doing valuations more for, you know, for companies that were acquired, right? So like a lot of industries are very acquisitive. But then after, even like maybe 21 and 22, this is going to be sad. A lot of the valuations I'm doing are for divorce cases. So because, because a lot of companies are either, well, divorce cases are selling. They're either selling their company or they're getting divorced. And then they have a company that they have together. So then they have to value it for a divorce proceeding. Just so like family companies in, in that sense, uh, am I getting that right? Oh, yes. okay. okay. Yeah. So let's say, yeah. Oh, no, no. So let's say you, let's say you have a company. Let's say you own an engineering company, but you and your wife, you both own it. And now you're getting divorced. So now you have to value the business so you can split it 50-50. So then you need to know how much the value is. And so a lot of the purpose for the valuation for me has shifted to divorce cases, which is sad, but you know, it happens. And then also people who are selling. So a lot of the companies that I'm, that I valued in 2022 were restaurants because they're the ones that were selling a lot here. So there was a shift in the type of companies that I acquired, that I was valuing. And then the purpose of the valuation also changed. And then, and then based, so based on that one. So if the industry, let's say it was restaurants, you know, there were a lot of risk involved. So then the valuation was slightly different. The methodology versus let's say Zoom. Or a logistics company, right? Let's say you're delivering, like, you know, like delivering for Amazon. I mean, you are, you know, your multiples here for, for business like that have increased because, you know, delivery has increased as well. It's quite funny that you, well, yeah, it's sad actually that you mentioned it, that a lot of companies file for divorce cases. But then again, when, it makes me wonder when, I, I guess people start their companies because usually, I'm not sure if this is the right term, but help me out here. Uh, I'm thinking about prenup. I, I've, I've heard this word. But oh, a yeah, prenup. Yeah, yeah uh -huh. it's a prenup. Yeah, it's you a prenup. separate yeah. the assets from uh, one side and the other side. So in, in case of a divorce, uh, that doesn't happen. So do is it that bad that people actually go all in together and they, they hope for, you know... <laughs> Don't, oh, don't expect well, the, oh. they don't expect the, <laughs> yeah because no I just people go just, separate just place. to give give an idea how weird it is in the past years we've uh -huh. seen Jeff Jeff Bezos break yep. up and 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 get a divorce we've seen yep. Bill Gates and Melinda Gates see a divorce which is it's just really like of course it's also part of the media the new media and that things come out much more and they're much more out in the open. But when you mentioned that there are actually more settlements and before settlements now for valuation, it does make you think like, is there a broader picture that we're missing all uh -huh. here or something? 
I'm not sure if there's a, you know what? I think now it's just more high profile, right? Because now you're seeing a lot more high profile pe- picture, uh, people getting divorces. And then, you know, Melinda, Jeff Bezos' wife, I don't know, I forgot how much she got, but she is now, no, even Melinda Gates, are they're like, you know, they have so much money that they're giving away. Like right now I saw $250 million in, in grants, right? To like 250 entrepreneurs, right? So, but, but I guess the point is that I think the whole thing with splitting businesses have gotten more in the forefront now that you have this high, more high profile divorces, but it's been going on for years, even if it's a small business, like let's say, and even if it's only, let's say the husband or the wife that has the business, but here in the US, you have to split the assets evenly, right? So then you still have to go and, you know, let's say if you, and, and a lot of times let's say you have a business and it's valued at a million, then you have to think about, okay, aside from splitting the business, do you, what do you do with it? Do you decide to keep it? Do this one person decide to keep it? Do you want to run it together? Do you want to sell it? Right. So then there's also that added complication. So I work with a few people as, as well, advisors that once I value, they figure out, okay, well, what do I do next? Right. What's the best, what's the best method to go through this divorce and then split the business? Yeah, just out of curiosity, because in my personal situation, it, it doesn't matter because my wife and I arrange things differently. But mm-hmm. like, for instance, if you have a husband and a wife and say the wife or the husband owns the business and it's valuated at, let's keep it easy, like a million dollars, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's a divorce situation and the owner gets that it's a valuation of a million dollars, which basically means half a million goes to the other person. But where does that money yep. come from? Because it's a valuation. It's actually a business. It's not really like the money is physically there. Yeah, it's not hard assets. Yeah, and yeah. Yet. Yes. And so, so then that's after you do the valuation, you decide, so what do I do? Do you want to do you want to buy out the other person, right? And then do you, do you want to buy them out? How do you buy them out? Do you do, do you take a loan? Do you give them, let's say it's 500,000. Do you pay them in equal installments, right? So then you can pay them out of the proceeds or something like that. Not like not, if you decide not to sell it, right? So then you decide, let's say you decide not to sell it. So now you have to, as you said, you have to find the half a million to pay the other spouse. Yeah. So you so, can either so, get loans. Yeah. So basically. So maybe don't get divorced. Fun. That's no, the thing. Either, either don't get divorced <laughs> or do a prenup. Because yeah. you kind of end up doing the same thing that you had to do in a prenup. You're kind of doing after you're getting divorced as well. Because in a prenup, you're actually already stating like this is, this is what we're going to do whenever the situation arises that we split up. So basically, they're kind of doing the same thing that you would do in a pre in prenup arrangements where you have to decide, okay, if, if, if we split up, how much of the business or how do you kind of give, give my portion of what I invested into the relationship? So I find it very ah. funny that people don't take a prenup, but then they divorce and they actually have to discuss the things after the divorce that could have been in the prenup. So I, I think that's that's a very oh, interesting, I see. interesting yeah. perspective from, from my side. Well, well, two things, right? So first, in when people think that when you have a, let's say, okay, you say, oh, we're going to have a prenup because you have money beforehand, right? You're like, oh, I don't want to give my money to my wife. So then let's have a prenup. So then when we get divorced, I don't want her to take half. But then what if you have the business after, right? So let's say you, 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 you know, you, ha- you started with nothing and then you, you know, you get married and now, and then you built up this business. So that's not part of your brain. Then, then you should give, you, you should give shares straight away because it, 
So that that's my perspective from things that I would give my wife shares. If we would do a business together and we would have a prenup situation, I would give, I would give her shares in the company as well. Like, and that's oh, where you're so I, nice. No, but that's, that's, I mean, that's all <laughs> I think. I, I understand that people still think differently in this perspective, yeah. but there could also be cases. And I think this is interesting as well, because one of the discussions we had was like having a prenup. It also means that if business goes sideways, and especially with the Surinamese law, if business goes sideways, the, the collectors, they can't claim anything that's owned by the family. Okay. Uh-huh. So that's also so the then, other way around. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, okay. So if, so if the business, let's say, goes bankrupt, then they can't go after the family, right? No, because and, there's, in uh-huh. the prenup, it said that that business is separate from the family. Oh, okay. So I guess here, maybe the same well, here. Would that fall where under can... like an LLC structure and something yes, like that? I was yeah. going to say, yeah. Because then it's... So you just have to change the, the structure. Yeah, because then you yeah, separate you the, the legal entities to, you know, a, a natural person. And yeah, I, I don't know what the technical terms are on those things, yeah. but I, I kind of get the picture there. But then again, there's different purposes. As you said, you can either buy them out or find a way to pay them if you don't have the liquid assets on hand. Mm-hmm. So then comes the question, something you talk about is, you know, finding the truth behind the, the reason why people want to sell, the reason why people want to exit or why they want to acquire something. Like what's your process in when you engage these people, these the businesses on finding the truth? Like how, how do you engage them? What, what does finding the truth mean to you? Okay, so I, I guess it, let's say in the beginning when people approach me, and then typically it's a, it's a business. Like for example, I yesterday I got approached by a business owner, and then they said that they wanted to sell, eventually because he's in his eighties, right? So then he said that maybe he's not gonna, he's only gonna have a few more years before he decides to retire. But then this business owner had reached out to me, maybe five years ago. Right. But he wanted at that point, he thought he wanted to sell, but he didn't. And so for me, a lot of it is finding the truth of their purpose or their motivation, why they want to sell. And a lot of times what I find with business owners, and I'm sure you feel the same way, is that it's their baby. So then they don't want to sell. They think they're ready. But then but then but then a lot of them actually back out after we have done the valuation because they say, oh, my, my sweat and equity was much more worth more than that, right? So for me, a, the biggest thing is really finding the motivation for, for why they're selling. And then, and then B, finding the, finding the truth behind the numbers, right? Is it really what they're telling me? But for me, before I even get to that point, it's really figuring out it's like, like psychologically and mentally if they're ready to sell and then their motivation behind it. So a lot of it is honestly being a psychiatrist. And, and being a therapist. Yeah, so <laughs> you study a lot. You study a lot to become a therapist and a, psychi- a psychologist. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. The, the numbers, yeah. looking at the numbers comes after the fact, after finding the reason. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because as for example, I, I also became a mediator during COVID. And this was in response to a lot of the valuations that I was doing based on a dispute. So, for example, divorce is a dispute, right? So I do valuation based on that. But then I also do valuation based on a shareholder. Let's say they have two shareholders and they're fighting and they want to split the business. So I do a valuation based on that. 
So a lot of the, but yeah, aside from that, I have to act as a mediator and say, okay, in order for me to find the truth behind these numbers or behind the operations, I really need to dig deep about a lot of stuff first that, that goes be, you know, deeper, deeper than the numbers, honestly. So it, yeah, it's a lot of therapy work. <laughs> I, I now understand the, the earlier statement you made that it, it's more of an art form than an actual science. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And yes. You, exactly. you have to, you know, manage emotions, manage expectations. Yeah. Deal with people and make sure that both parties come out, you know, have happier out of that situation. Yes, exactly. And then, and, and I always say that, you know, like I just, I just put on what's reasonable. You know, I don't, you know, I don't put something that's too high, too low. It's just what's reasonable based on what I find out. Right. Because then a lot of times I have, this is something that you have to file. You have to file it with the IRS, right? Like with, with either the, the, you know, for taxes or you file it with the Securities and Exchange Commission or it may go to court. So the things that I do have to be supportable and reasonable. So, so how much of the, the idea to go into mediation is actually to prevent things going to court, to the, to the court? Oh, yeah. Actually, a lot of it, because when they say about maybe 80% of cases that are filed settle, right? So it's a very high number. So not a lot of, not a lot of cases actually go to court. So as you said, like a lot of it is really kind of mediating this, the circumstances, the situation. So it doesn't have to go to that because going to court is expensive. And a lot of times you're only going to court because for me, because you feel like you're not being heard. And so when you're mediating, the biggest thing they tell us is you have to make sure that you hear both sides or that they hear each other out. Because a lot of times you can kind of mediate expectations and then prevent dispute if you just let people say what they need to say. Is there, so I've read the book, what's it called again? Negotiating Like Your Life Depends On It by Chris Voss. And he goes about, you know, negotiating and his former FBI negotiated, and he talks about never, never settling for no. And oh, I'm uh-huh. not sure if you read the book or are familiar with it. No, but at the core of it, so that that's the surface level cover, you know, to get your attention. But at the core of it, it comes down to you know listening and letting the counterparty feel heard and letting them realize it's, it's not about persuasion; it's, it's about actually letting them realize for themselves that that's something that, that they want. So are there specific techniques or I'd say phrasing that you use to help mediate parties when there's a dispute to, to get them to open up and share what's really bothering them or making them find their own truth? Yeah, so, so there are two things that I use. First, and, I, and admittedly, I hope no one, is, no one I know is hopefully <laughs> they don't take this, you know, they don't take this so hard, but I've used some of these techniques when I'm dealing with relationships. So for example, one of them is that people are uncomfortable with silence. So if you, even if it's just a few seconds, and, and I always found this very interesting is that if you, let's say if someone says something, right? Let's say you're trying to negotiate something. Someone says something and the other party hesitates for even five seconds, but five seconds seems like a lifetime. You know, it sounds like it's two minutes. Inevitably, the other person will say something like to even counteract the other person, right? So, but so I always say, if you keep quiet, people will always say something first. 
So that's like one of the biggest strengths, things that I learned. And with regards to phrasing, two things I always say is that so when someone is talking, I just, I just nod and then I say, go on. And then people will just tell you whatever they need, whatever you need to know. Right. But yeah, keeping quiet and saying that and saying for me, the biggest phrase is I hear you. Right. It's, it's big. It's really big because when I was, I remember I was mediating. I was mediating for the courts here in Orange County and there were, there was, there were, there was a party and they haven't seen each other in four years. And so now they're going to court for the first time. And literally I said, oh my God, this is going to be very hard because they haven't seen each other in several months or in several years. But the first thing is that the other party just said, you just don't listen to me. I just want to be heard. And I said, go ahead, tell, tell her what you need to say. And then inevitably, like within five minutes, they say, okay, because they were settling for, I, I forget how much, maybe 10 or 15,000. And I said, well, tell her what you need to say. And after that, he goes, okay, well, you know what? That's all I need to say. That's it. I go, okay. So then they ended up dropping it. But, yeah, but a lot of times, like giving people the forum to just talk is, yeah, is, is big. So silence it's, and it's, then it's saying, I hear you. Yeah. yeah, but it's, it's very it's insane. Simple. Like, very, to, very what, simple. Yeah. to what lengths people would go to fight for just something really, really small. It's, it's really, it's really yeah. for being heard. And I, I have yeah. to, yeah. I, yeah, I have to laugh. Yeah. There's a reason I'm laughing because there's a promotional video about a match that's going to happen between Manchester United, Manchester United, which is one of the biggest uh, football clubs, soccer clubs in the UK. And Wrexham, which yeah. is a, a club that has been taken over by by two actors, and they wanted to promote it because it's the first time that Wrexham is actually going to play in the U.S. They're going to play in San Diego, oh. and so they show this clip of the two actors, Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds. And Ryan Reynolds, of oh, course, the, no, big, uh, yeah. the big superstar. They bought the club, right. the small, the Welsh club, and they're going to play against Manchester United. And on the other side of the call is Sir Alex Ferguson, who is a sir in in the UK one of the most respected mm. people in, in the business. And the two actors are talking to each other saying like, listen, he's a master negotiator. So we have to pull off our A game. And they start the call with him and they start talking to him and respecting him. And he doesn't respond. And they just, <laughs> they just lose their mind. And at a sudden they just say something and they close off the call because they are so intimidated by him. And then <laughs> after that, the, they show this, the story from his side Whereas somebody from his team walks in and asks like, hey, how did the, the call go? And he just goes and says to her like, well, yeah, they were on mute. So I didn't hear yeah. anything. Yeah, that, that, no, that's funny. But yeah, yeah. so, so people are just uncomfortable. The, the uncomfortable yeah. with silence is indeed. And I think with everything in relationships, and in, even with mm -hmm. your friends, if it falls silent, somebody will be like, ah, I need to say something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But try it. I mean, but the thing is, I remember even three seconds of silence feels like a lifetime. So I have, I'm a natural talker, so I have to like clip my accent. <laughs> okay, give me three. I have to literally count. I go, okay, my God, it's been, it says, has it only been three seconds, right? Yeah, but it, it, it really works. So, so it's you, you can tell people, see, people will tell you the their silence secrets. works yeah. in the relationship. Silence works in the relationship with, with listening because what people always tell you is like, become a good listener, but you can also achieve sometimes the same thing through silence. 
happy to say that. Yes, but then I, I guess another tip that I learned now that I think about it is, and this is also very simple, is that repeating what other people say, but just repeating it in a different way, right? So for example, because a lot of times, let's say if I'm negotiating something, I, I, I haven't met, like I've never met these people before. I'm meeting them for the first time at this mediation, you know, circle. And so a lot of times I'm repeating something for my own benefit, right? Because I didn't understand. But then the biggest thing about negotiation or also kind of facilitating something is re basically restating what they say, right? So then it also makes them feel heard. And then it also clarifies it on your part. So for example, you say, oh, did you say this or do you mean this? And if they say yes, okay, then they feel like, oh, okay, she actually did hear me, right? And then they'll correct you if it's not really, and then for your benefit, if it's incorrect, then, you know, you know, you're correct. Yeah. Getting that clarification is key because you don't want to go with an assumption that, oh, this is what they meant. And in, in the book, they talk, uh, he mentions it. It's, it's, I think that technique you're describing, he labels it as mirroring. So repeating the last three mm, words yes. are kind of the, the most important words of the, the statement they made and then just restating it and using things like, it feels like you're feeling this way or I heard that you mentioned this. Is that correct? And then just asking for the exactly. So going from negotiating and a lot of disputes, kind of the divorces now, how much do, I guess, if you compare the divorces versus the more high stakes businesses, like between companies, how much do they differ if, if you're in the mediation seat or the negotiating seat? Like, is, is the pressure the same? Is the pressure different? Like, how, how are expectations? Oh, well, you know, divorce cases are always, it doesn't, for divorce cases, it doesn't matter how big or small the business is. There's always this tension that you can, that you, you, you cannot contain, right? Unless they're just very amicable with each other. But, but I think um, with divorce cases, it's a little bit more personal because then you, you know, a lot of times you're dealing with people who have their businesses their whole life, right? And then you're also dealing with this added emotion. So then, you have to be a little bit more sensitive. And a lot of times you're also, when you're doing divorce cases, you either are acting as the one valuation expert for both for the couple or they can have two. So then, you know, you also have to be a little bit more cognizant about that. And then for divorce cases too, a lot of times the person who has built the business, they'll say, oh no, the business is worth minimal, right? The person who like actually owns it, let's say, let's say the husband owns it and they're like, oh no, it's only worth a hundred thousand. And the wife will say, no, it's worth a million, you know, because obviously they want, when they split it, the one, the wife or whoever, the other party wants to get as much as possible. Whereas the, the other person's like, no, I don't want to pay that much. So you have that added complication, right? Of kind of dealing with people's egos and emotion. But with regards to one that's a bit more, let's say it's more for corporate, you know, you don't have that, you know, you don't have that added emotion. Although that, the emotion is a little different. Sometimes like when I'm, when I'm dealing with that, where they're trying to sell their company, the emotion is more like, oh, how come my company is worth, is just worth this much? Yeah. Right? It's, it's, so they that, feel like it's undervalued. Whereas the, so the, so the, the actual, like if it's a small business, they're like, no, Keep it as low as possible, like you mentioned. I can imagine that 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 would definitely play a role. Yeah. 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 But emotions, yeah, emotions are a little bit different, but there's still emotion, you know, emotions involved, unless it's just a very big company and then you're just dealing, you know, 
dealing with something that they need to file, let's say with, you know, IRS is the internal revenue service, right? For taxes. Let's say something so, like that. Yeah. So, but for, you're, you're talking about emotions now, which brings up another interesting question. You're based out of North America and U.S., but you've also have experience with, with, with programs, in, entrepreneurial programs in Asia, in Europe, in Latin America. So what are things that are, what are some similarities, things that are the same in business, like everywhere in the world? And what, what are things that are different in each continent? Oh, okay. So I think, so I think the one that's different is how people express themselves, right? So I'm going to make a generalization. So people in Latin America are obviously a, a bit more expressive than, let's say, someone from Japan or someone from China. Right. So those are, I think, as I said before, nuances that you have to be cultural differences and nuances that you have to take into account. So, for example, if I've, if I'm naturally talkative, but I'm talking to someone who is a bit more reserved, then I have to tone down, you know, maybe like my demeanor and even the way you dress and even the things, you know, like even the way you behave to fit the culture. Right. To make them more comfortable, because when you make someone more comfortable, then they tend to tell you the truth and they tend to tell you more things, right? So which helps when you're valuing something, then you're not blindsided. Because then a lot of times, as you said, when we go back, valuation is only half financials and then half of them are other factors that you have to quantify. And you can't quantify that if people don't talk to you and talk to you truthfully, right? So I think that one is the same that I think that's the big difference that the cultural differences. And I think one thing is the same is I think I'm going to tie it back to listening is at the end of the day, people just want to be heard. And so being nice to people, I think like it's it's universal. Right. But yeah, I mean, I think just being a good person and being nice is something that it doesn't matter. It translates to, you know, it translates throughout throughout cultures. So. And to from going wide and zooming it back into California, you're based in California, a lot of startups, startup culture there, entrepreneurship culture there. And mm -hmm. a lot of these, especially tech startup, raise funds, they go to pre-seed rounds, and then they, they get these astronomical valuations without getting a product on the market yet. So what's uh -huh. your take on the hypervaluation of these tech startups like do you think they're overvalued do you think they get money too easily like what, what, what's your view on that yeah well for, first first what i want is i want to be able to get one of those and get funding like some random thing right <laughs> but but like in all honesty though i it's it's kind of because a lot of times valuation is also very emotional right and as I said, it's the story. It's the story behind it. Because I look at, for example, do you have something called Shark Tank? I'm sure you guys are familiar with something. Okay. So for example, like I look at Shark Tank and then some of the products and I see some of the products that they have funded. And then I've looked at maybe years before, years after that. And they, you know, they, you know, they never get off the ground. But it's really for me, just that's why it's, if you're selling something, it's really important to tell the story, right? And then because it really evokes emotion, but that's, but to answer your question, I think that's why there's so many, I think, overvalued startups here in California. But, but I think that's changing because before they, you know, a lot of the companies are so flushed with money that they just need to invest in something, right? So, but, but now I think they're a bit more cautious in investing. So now they're very specific about the industry, 
So for example, like right now, you know, maybe something in logistics or something in EV, because like electronic vehicles, I think. And then AI, yeah, artificial intelligence. So it just depends on the industry. So Diego, do you think we have room for one more in-depth question or would you rather go towards overrated underrated? I think we got time for one more in-depth question. You got something? Yeah, so I was wondering because Christina, you work as well with uh, local Filipino businesses and you actually mm -hmm. have something which is quite kind of interesting. You've set up a product showroom like to, to present Philippine products to the world. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and the inspiration behind it. Sure. Yeah. So, so basically it's called Emporium and Emporium is a, the first, cause we're private, private slash, um, government partnership where we're able to create a showroom at the department of trade and industry office, which is part of the consul general's office in LA. And so basically what our goal is, is that we, there's so many good Philippine products that especially ingredients and something with food that they can't take over here because they don't have a place to show it. And so for us, the natural extent, well, the selfish extension is that, hey, I wanted to try and sample all these different products, right? Because they sent us samples. But B, it's also to showcase them and to have people touch and feel and experience it. Because a lot of times these are very small entrepreneurs where they maybe even just sell on Amazon. But aside from that, you know, if it's something that's tactile, like, people can't really touch the product. So it's really a place for them to, to see and touch and feel the products. And then we have buyers come that can actually order the products that they want to. So because I find it really interesting because there is some governmental involvement there, I guess, that the, the government from the Philippines kind of, is this something that you would consider that people or countries especially should pay more attention to in their, their foreign affairs that they actually give like the embassies or okay, embassies might be a little, a little bit difficult because of the security aspect, but consulates mm -hmm. are like associated organizations ruled to represent their company because there are some great opportunities there. If, if you tell it like that, actually having a showroom at the same place where the consulate of the country, for instance, is, is this something that, how would we be able to learn from that? For instance, how would we sure not be able to learn from the Philippines in that? That sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, I think as you I think what you're trying to say, yes, this is something that you can duplicate, right? So this model is something that's very, I would say very doable and very easy, not very easy, but it's doable to duplicate. And so for us, it's really just a trying to figure out a, there was a space, right? There was a space for us at the department, that trade and industry office and B, they're just very willing to work with us is that, you know, a lot of. One thing I found about, you know, even the one here in LA is that they're very open to just, let's say, to other businesses to for partnerships. But yeah, I think this is something that's very needed because if you're, let's say, a company in Suriname and then you're trying to, you know, you have, you have, you know, really great products and you buy them, you maybe you may sell them on Amazon. But if someone like me who needs to touch the products, right, you, it would be great if you can, if there's a place that you can do that, something you can experience. So, but yeah, absolutely. If you have any ideas. Yeah, interesting. My head is kind of like getting at the moment. Yeah, yes. And I can, I can send you, uh, yeah, I can send you some pictures. So basically what we do is aside from the, aside from the showroom, we also do different pop-ups. So we do markets with them as well. 
And then we also do, yeah, so we do a lot of marketing behind it. And then we do, we work with wholesalers as well. So we work with wholesale buyers here. So we do a lot of matchmaking. So Yeah, especially when it comes to physical products, food and things with not such a long shelf life, you need to be able to yes. experience it. Like, like, will it last? Will people stick to it? Like, how fast is it going? Like the velocity and... That, that's quite uh, interesting. Yeah. So to close it off, and actually, I, I don't want to go to the over-under. I actually have a different question in mind in the context of valuation and ending this episode. Mm-hmm. Exit planning. Like, mm-hmm. when you think about valuation and especially growing a business and one that you plan to, I'd say, eventually sell or hand over to your, the next generation? Like how important is exit planning when we're thinking about valuation and how should people look at exit planning? Because you mentioned before, for example, the, the person you talked with five years ago, they, they wanted to sell, but then now, now they're, they're having second thoughts. Like how, yes. how much should people think about exit planning in their business? Yeah, I, I think people don't think of it as, as much as they should. And they don't think of it as long-term as they should, right? So a lot of times people say, oh, I want to sell my business in six months. So yeah, I usually say you should be thinking about exiting within maybe three to five years. Five years is a long on the long side, but three to five years before you're thinking about exiting. Because a lot of times you have to prep your business for a sale. So whether you want to make sure that your accounting is in place or your, you know, your trademarks are actually in place, you know, anything that's legal and and financial, you have those someplace, right? But I think that also the biggest thing is making sure, I always say this, when they're buying your business, they're not buying you. So unless, you know, you're going to be as a consultant for them, right? You have to make sure that you are, you are not needed because there is actually something, a discount for someone who's a key person. Let's say the business is run by one person in, let's say it's like an accounting firm where you're the face. So if someone buys your firm, there's going to be a discount because you're the key person. You're not going with them. So automatically, not automatically, but a lot of times the value will be lower unless you can make yourself redundant. I call it redundant. So you have to make sure that if someone can't do your work, some, if you can't do your work, someone else can do it for you, right? Because then what even think, what if you get sick? What if this happens? What if this happens? Like now who's going to do the work? So you have to make sure that you have to set things in place so that people, that, so that your work can continue even without you. Which is very hard, but you know, that's something you need to do if you're thinking about exit planning. Food for thought, food for thought. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we got enough space for one over under. Why don't you start? Okay, overrated, off? underrated. So basically, what we do is we ask you a question about something and you tell us whether you feel it's overrated, underrated, or proper or properly rated. That sometimes occurs. Okay. And then you have some room if you want to talk about it, whether or not, why you said that. So let's start start off with AI, artificial intelligence. Is it overrated or underrated? I think it's underrated right now. I think there's more room to expansion for expansion because I see it more and more, like even with travels from, you know, overseas, right? How they've been using AI. So I think this is going to continue to grow. All right. Mine is quite, I'd say, recent. Would you say the acquisition of the banks 
it's oh. overrated or <laughs> underrated. I'd say that the yeah. Okay, I maybe this is more maybe maybe a political question, right? Because depending on what your political leanings here, it's like oh no, they shouldn't have done that. They should have done that. But I I mean I think I think they needed to do it. So maybe it's neutral. I think it's something that needed to be done in order to prevent the stock. Uh, you know. <laughs> A downfall of the stocks, right? I think otherwise, I think it's just gonna, just gonna tumble. Yeah. And so I think it's just keeping yeah. the valuations alive. neutral. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. No, thanks for sharing that, Christina. And I think we've gotten some quite some insight on valuation and some things we haven't really thought about when we're running a business, especially you know exit planning, the, the divorce stuff was really interesting that, you know, that's quite happening a lot more. And the negotiation techniques that you shared about keeping some silence yeah. and just people wanting to be heard. And I think that's yeah. very important to take home, not just in business, but just in the relationships in general. So with that being said, Christina, one last question. Where can people find you and learn more about what you're doing? Sure. So you can find out about me. So it's sparkvation.com, which is my consulting firm. And I can, and then, but if you go to christinaspiritu.com, so just my name, it has everything that I've been doing. So and everything from YLI, my mentorship, the stuff that I've been doing, both for profit and nonprofit side. So just all my interests. So awesome. Yeah. So, Christina, we really want to thank you for this episode. It has been a really fun episode and we learned quite a lot, like Diego already okay. mentioned. You've also said that people can reach out either to your business or to your personal profile to connect with you or to your personal website to connect with you. So we really want to thank you for being part of Social Compost. For everybody who tuned in and was listening or is listening or watching the replay of this episode, thank you as well. As usual, Diego will drop. Uh, versions and audio versions to all streaming platforms for you to listen to and we want to invite you back for the next episode of Social Bound yeah. Force next week same place same time thank you again bye bye <laughs>